that? What do you argue with other people about? Anger is unique because, I mean, there is this thing as righteous anger. Not all anger is wrong, but, but anger typically is a secondary emotion where anger is the outward sign of something deeper inside of you. Anger often will uh, expose what you are cherishing deep within your heart. So, for example, uh, William Wilberforce, uh, we, you may know him from history. He was the abolitionist in, in Great Britain many years ago. And because of his faith, because he looked and said, listen, God created mankind equal. Uh, there, there, there's no difference in mankind. He created all men in the image of God with intrinsic value. Wilberforce, of course, was opposed to the slave trade based on his faith. And it's interesting because as he was going about uh, trying to uh, get rid of the slave trade, there he faced all sorts of opposition. And surprisingly, he faced opposition from other Christians. Why would Christians oppose abolition of slavery? Well, the reality is the slave trade uh, and its industries uh, supported, um, the industries that the slave trade supported was uh, manufacturing and agriculture and sugar. And you had these titans that grew sugar and the slave trade was vital to their economics. So these Christians opposed Wilberforce not because of a morality issue, not because of a gospel issue, but because it affected their income. Again, let me ask you, what makes you angry? What does that anger reveal deep within inside your heart? Let me ask you another way of asking that same question. Um, what is it that you cannot live without? Now, I'm not talking about food and water and air. I'm talking about those other things that we think we can't live without in terms of maybe uh, our wealth, in terms of maybe other people's opinions and how they view us, maybe in terms of specific people that we're like, I just can't live without them. Because what happens is when we have these things that we feel like, man, I have to have it. I can't live without it. We do crazy things to protect it. In fact, there's a story from a couple years ago, I think I might have shared this before, where a lady was, was hiking in the woods and found an outhouse. And she goes to the, she does what we all do, right? She pulls out her phone, okay? She's in the outhouse on her phone and drops her phone down into the stuff. Like, well, what do you do? So she starts trying to just get her hand in and tries and can't quite reach it. And she's like, oh, what do I do? Can't live without my phone. And so she, she has a dog and she gets her dog leash and takes a leash and, and is trying to, and that doesn't work. So next she takes a leash. She, she flips up the toilet seat. She wraps a leash around her waist. She ties it to something and she goes in trying to get it until the leash gave way and she came all the way in. <laughs> Dig it around. She finds her phone and can't get out, so she calls 911. Can you, be, can you imagine taking that call? Like the 911, hello, what's your emergency? Um, well, <laughs> okay, my mind goes weird places thinking about that. I think we would say falling to an outhouse is pretty ridiculous. Most of us would say, well, I wouldn't climb in an outhouse for something. But it's that question of what is it that you can't live without? What is it that you would do anything for? 
to keep. You might not jump into an outhouse, but you'd fight for it. You'd pursue it. You'd cherish it. You'd hold it with tight grips because you can't live without it. These questions are revealing because they help us to begin to see the idols that we have in our life. An idol is simply this. An idol is anything that we view as being more important to God. An idol are things that we pursue apart from God that we think will give us peace and joy to make us satisfied, to make life right and bearable, to make life complete. These things are usually good things. They're not bad things, but they're things that we turn into ultimate. So oftentimes, idols are things like money. We just, we pursue money because we think it's going to make our life right. Or sex, or entertainment, or respect, or power and influence, popularity. All these different idols that our culture puts in front of us and say, listen, if you just pursue this, if you go this way, then life will be good and right. You know, it's so true, is our sin is so often tied to these roots of idols in our heart. Things that we choose to love and pursue apart from God. We have spent the majority of this year studying the book of Acts. As we look at the early church, how they become a movement that literally changes the world and flips it upside down. And we're in the book trying to say, God, how could we at Restoration Church in Yakima, Washington, how could we become a movement and experience the power of God like the early church did? And Acts chapter 19 is, is an awesome passage because it deals with that topic of idols. Idols in the Old Testament are going to be like, like statues, like graven images. Idols today, they don't look the same. Our idols are not things we put on our shelf. Our idols are more things inside ourselves. On this passage that Jake read for us this morning, we're going to see uh, Paul, a man who is fully, 100%, totally sold out for God. And Paul is going to show that when we prioritize the gospel in our lives, it exposes idols. And when we be people that are resolved to live for Jesus, resolved to live for God, that's when the power of God shows up. Begins to take the idols out of our lives. And the greatest thing is it begins to impact the culture around us where God begins to show those idols in our world to other people. Other people can see, man, those idols are weak and insufficient. We're going to jump in. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 Here's how it starts. It says, Paul, resolved by the Spirit, decided to pass through Macedonia of Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And after he'd been there, he said, it was necessary for me to go see Rome as well. Paul is a strategist. Paul is always making plans. He says, hey, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to be there for Pentecost. But before that, I want to go to Rome. Like, who doesn't want to go see Rome, right? Well, Paul literally is going to go see Rome in different means that he intended he's going to go on a shipwreck and as a prisoner. But the word I want to hone in on there is verse 20 when it said, Paul was resolved by the Spirit. What does that mean to be resolved in the Spirit? Well, I would say most of us in here, we've made some dedication in our life. 
We've dedicated our lives to, to some, something. We've, we've devoted ourselves to pursue this or to do this or that. We've made a commitment to something. And that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. But to be resolved in the spirit is bigger than just making a commitment. It, it's, it's this deep conviction to honor God with everything in our life. Paul was a man who lived a life that was resolved in the spirit. Paul literally was saying, God, God, here's my life. God, what do you want for me? God, what, what you ask me to do, I'll do. Where you ask me to go, I'll go. God, where do you want me to go? You want me to go across the world and proclaim the gospel? All right, I'm in. God, you want me to face persecution and abuse and rejection because of that gospel? Okay, God, I'm resolved in the spirit. I'm dedicated to you. I will follow you. I'm in. You know, this is what the gospel does. The gospel makes us people that are resolved in the spirit, resolved to live lives for God. See, the gospel is this word we use in the church all the time. The gospel simply is good news. It's the good news that despite that, the fact that you and I are sinners, separated from God, God in his love chose to send Jesus to live the life that we couldn't. God in his love chose to send Jesus to the cross to bear the penalty for our sin, to die in our place, and to rise again from the grave so we could be free, so we could experience salvation, so we could experience his peace, so he could give us a right relationship with God? When we understand the depth of what Jesus has done for us, man, it's like this change happens inside of us. Where all of a sudden we have this resolve in our spirit. And I'm, I'm going to live for the things of God. What God has done for me is so remarkable, I can't help but say, God, what do you want from me? Because I want to follow you. And that resolved life leads to a conviction and a dedication to God that says, God, I was bought with a price, and so I'm yours. God, I will trust you. I will follow you. I will depend on you, whatever it is you have for me. In fact, when you hear this idea of somebody whose life is resolved in God, who comes to mind for you? Is there someone that comes to mind that you're like, man, that person, their life is so dedicated to God, they, they live for him? Who's that person that you can picture that's sold out and surrendered and submitted to God? Because I tell you, like, you be around people like that, and isn't it just inspiring? Isn't it inspiring to be around people that are just sold out? Huh. What would it take for you and I to be that person? that we become sold out and resolved to live for the things of God. Paul, he was resolved. He's making plans for the future. He's preaching the gospel, and he's in the city of Ephesus. You see that? It's sus. Suspect. That's a joke for the teenagers. That was awesome. I use that in a sermon. I'm taking credit for that. <laughs> Ephesus is not a great place and something's about to happen. Verse 23, it says, About the same time, about that time, there arose no little disturbance. That means there arose a big disturbance concerning the way, concerning the church, concerning Christians. See, Ephesus, the center of the city, was this 
a huge temple. This, this miraculous temple. This place, this place was, was huge. Uh, it had over 100,000 square foot of building that had a roof over it. I mean, you could put like one and a half football stadiums inside that thing. It's huge. There were 127 marble columns, 60 feet tall, made of marble. The wall, I mean, this place was, was, was massive and beautiful and expensive. You know what they did there? They worshiped idols. What had happened in that city is there had been a meteorite that had fallen down outside of the city. And the people looked and were like, this meteorite, it's magical. Of course, that's when something falls out of the sky. We're like, it's magical. And so they see this meteorite and they're like, man, it's magical. We're going to carve it into something beautiful and it's going to become the God of fertility and love. And we're going to worship it because we want to be fertile and we want to experience love. Now, what's really fascinating is, you know what they carved into that meteorite? They carved, I'm not going to show you a picture of this, but they carved a multi-breasted woman. That was the goddess of fertility and love. Really, it was nothing more than prostitution. It was more about lust than it was about love. But that goddess, Artemis, she was put on the altar in the temple. She was a protector of the city. They thought, we've got, we've got, we've got Artemis. She's here. She's a protector. We're safe. Nothing can touch us. We're the marvelous city. We've got the marvelous temple. We've got the marvelous Artemis. This is the safest place. In fact, historical record says that there were small nations and, and cities that would bring their entire treasury. Imagine that. Bring their entire treasury and keep it in the temple. Why? It was the most safe and secure place in the world. Nothing's ever going to happen to it. A little secret, something does happen to it later on. But this temple was so big, it created its own tourist industry. People from all the world would, would come to this temple. And so, man, they made hotels and they made restaurants. And they made those little shops, souvenir shops. You can get the little uh, coffee cup with Artemis on it. You could get... Artemis is my co-pilot bumper stickers to put on your horse or whatever you drove. And you could get little, small statues, Artemis, to put on your desk, to put on your shelf, so you could take home and continue to worship. In fact, verse 24 says there was a man named Demetrius, and he was a silversmith. He's one of those people that made those trinkets, those souvenirs, those little silver shrines of Artemis. And he gathers some other uh, shop owners around, some other silversmiths that make all these keepsakes. And here's what he says, verse 25. He says, men, you know that from this business of all these souvenirs, we have our wealth. And we see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia. Listen to this. This Paul has persuaded and turned many people away, saying, man, gods of man Gods made in the hands of men are not real gods. He says, verse 27, there is a danger, not only for this trade of ours that might come to disrepute, but also to the temple of the great goddess Artemis, that she may be counted as nothing. She may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius, he's angry. What's he angry about? 
Remember what we said earlier? Our anger reveals what our heart cherishes most. Demetrius, he's angry about money. He had a good business going on. All these people are coming to the temple to worship. And then all of a sudden, the business begins to slow down. All of a sudden, man, economy is still going. Why are we not selling as much? Where's my bottom line? I mean, verse 26, it said, everyone in Asia and the world comes to worship her. Hear what he said? He said, there's this Paul, this man Paul, this man that is resolved and surrendered and compelled to live for God. He's preaching about this Savior. He's preaching about this Jesus who promises life, who promises freedom. He's preaching about this God who's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's preaching and saying, man, this all-powerful God, he comes to heal the sick and set the captives free. This all-powerful God gives peace. And because this Paul is preaching, there's less people worshiping Artemis. There's less people buying the bumper stickers that say, Artemis is my co-pilot. And his business is impacted. And he's angry because of it. Now I want to clarify one thing here that I think was fascinating. Notice, we don't see Paul actually targeting Artemis, right? I mean, nowhere do we read that Paul's out picketing the temple. We don't read that Paul is holding anti-idolatry rallies. I mean, it's true, he hated the false gods and he hated what it did to the people, but what is Paul doing? He's simply preaching the gospel with power and conviction. He's preaching about the way, the truth, and the life. He's preaching about Jesus. You see, I think what's fascinating is so often as Christians, we are known for what we're against. Oh, we're against this and this and this and this. And Paul's like, man... I want to be known for what I'm for. I'm pro-Jesus. Jesus is the one that's going to change people's lives. So rather than proclaiming all the bad things wrong with the world, man, he's just preaching Jesus. That's powerful. Well, Demetrius and his crew, they're angry. Hey, our bottom line's being affected. They're ready to start some stuff. Verse 28, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged, and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together to the theater, dragging with them two of Paul's companions. This theater, uh, they believe, held about 25,000 people in the theater. They couldn't find Paul, so they grabbed two of Paul's companions, and essentially what you have is a mob. You have a mob of people and honestly, the scripture says some of them didn't even know why they were there. They're just like, hey, people are gathering. They're angry. We're going to join it, right? Verse 34 says, for two hours, for two hours, this mob of people were shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, think, maybe we'll do it like this. We've got two, two sides here. We're going to put a line down the here, okay? When I point here, I want you to say, Arte and when I point here, you guys say miss, okay? Let's do this. Ready? Ready? I just got you all to do that. That is awesome. Arte miss! 
that's like the kind of stuff they were doing. They're so enraged. They're like, Artemis, Artemis, Artemis. She's great. She's a hero. That is awesome you guys did that. That is such a joy. Woo. I wasn't sure that would work. Oh, that's so awesome. Why do they gather together in this mob? Why do they create this scene? Why is there essentially a riot happening in this theater? Because the idol's been touched. Oh, not Artemis. The idol of money. Those simple, practical things that we so often put our trust in. Here's what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. When people are told about the God who loves them, who offers them peace, who who walks them through difficult things, who, who gives them peace and joy and fullness of life. When the gospel is proclaimed, it exposes the idols for being as weak and insufficient as they are. Why would you pursue this trinket? Why would you pursue this Artemis when you could have a relationship with the one true God? Now, what's remarkable here? Last week, our passage, the church in in Ephesus, they repented of their sin. I mean, they're just repenting of what they've done against God, repenting of their sin, repenting of idols. In a real sense, that church became like Paul. They were resolved in the spirit. They were surrendered. They were steadfast, dedicated to God. And result of that, last week, they're repenting. They are resolved for God. And this week, the power of God is unleashed. So even the silversmith's business is impacted because the people are trusting in God and not in idols. This is how the church becomes a movement. This is how the church becomes a movement. When the church, and I'm talking about you and me, I'm talking about us as Christians, when we are resolved for the things of God, when we are sold out and surrendered to him, that is when the power of God is unleashed on us and through us and around us and begins to change the city, begins to change our families, begins to change our church and our neighborhood. When we, as a church, say we're going to be resolved and dedicated and steadfast and obedient to what God has for us. Man, we sit in our pews and, oh, man, God, we want you to bring change. God, we want you to do this and that. But will we be resolved to live for him? Because I'm pretty sure the pattern in Scripture is as we as a church, are resolved and dedicated and surrendered, that is when the power of God comes and begins to work in us and through us in remarkable ways. Story ends where the town clerk, town mayor, he steps in and he's like, listen, hold up, guys, hold up. Like Ephesus, this is our city. It's great. No one can touch it. It's powerful. The center of, 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 of everything And, you know, we've got the beloved idol, Artemis. You know, she's great. She's awesome. Mayor's like, nothing can happen to us. Our city is too great. Our temple is too wonderful. Our goddess is uh, amazing. Fertility and love. Nothing's going to happen to us. And he says, hey, listen, these men, they're not sacrilegious or blasphemers of Artemis. Again, 
Remember, they weren't on an anti-idol platform. No, they're on a pro-Jesus platform. The mayor says these guys are not sacrilegious towards Artemis. So he says, listen, if you guys have a charge, if, if, if Paul and his companions in this church, if they've done something wrong, then we need to go to the courts. We need to do this lawfully. Because we need to be careful not to draw the attention of the Romans. Because what we have here today in this huge theater is a riot. Sends them all home. The key in this entire text, I love the story. I love seeing how the church, the gospel of Christianity begins to impact the world around it, where some of these dark, evil places, some of these wrong things begin to be taken away. But the key for this passage is it said, Paul was resolved in the spirit. In fact, this is what I would say is the summary of the, the theme of this message. A steadfast, resolved life for God exposes and diminishes the idols in our life and the idols in the world around us. This is what it comes down to. That when we live this steadfast, resolved life, God, I'm yours, I'm surrendered, I'll do what you want, that is when God begins to expose and diminish the idols in our life. And guess what? Not only in us, but the power of God through us into the world around us. And that is powerful. If we're going to live a steadfast life, if we're going to live resolved in the Spirit, we're going to have to take a lesson from last week's passage. It's going to require that we be willing to confess and repent of the idols in our lives. So let me ask you this morning. Let's get real personal here. What idols do you find yourself pursuing in your own life? Again, an idol is simply something apart from God that we turn to for joy or peace or protection or purpose or satisfaction. They're not bad things. Our family can be an idol when we say this is the most important thing in my life. In a real sense, idols are things that we worship. So what is it for you? What is the idol in your life? Many of us are going to be like Demetrius. Our idol is money. Money gives us security. Money makes us feel safe. We trust money. Our future is related to money. What is it for you? Other common idols can become a relationship, become power, Respect, beauty, success, knowledge, entertainment. What are the idols that you turn to instead of God? Let me ask this a different way. Help you diagnose your own heart. What makes you angry? Again, we said angry is a secondary emotion. Anger shows what your heart cherishes most. What makes you angry? What is that telling about you inside your heart? What is it that you cannot live without? What is it that you will defend and protect? And when someone questions you, you let them have it. You cut them off. You're like, you are an idiot. No, I'm fine. 
What is it that you cannot live without? You want to get a little more challenging? Look at your bank account. Where do you spend your money? Reveals to you oftentimes what matters most. Look at your calendar. Where do you spend most of your time? It shows you what you're pursuing as the number one priority. What are the idols that we need to confess today? You know, what's funny is we can come to church and we sit in our pew and we're like, man, that's such a good message. Oh, man, that guy across the pew, he's the one that needs to hear this. I'm going to borrow this from Pastor Tim Keller. He said, if you're sitting there and you feel like you have nothing to repent of, maybe you ought to be praying that God would open your eyes to the sin of pride. He said that, not me. So you get mad, talk to him, not me. I want to think about this for a second. Think with me for a second on this. Think about what worship was back then. These people, they worshiped their city. This is Ephesus, a city of 250,000 people, the center of power and culture and influence. And this is such a proud city. But guess what? That city, it's gone. It's a remnant. There are 36,000 people left there. You know who goes to Ephesus today? People on Holy Land tours and archaeologists. The city is gone. What about the beautiful temple? Oh, all of those columns and the marble and the millions of dollars. Guess what? That temple is gone. That temple's gone. Archaeologists, they, they, they found parts of it. They found a part of a column. There's certainly not 127 columns, not 60 feet tall. They found a part of a column. Look at us. That temple is gone. What about all those nations that left their money there because it's the safest place? Guess what? It's gone. What about Demetrius? Demetrius, the guy's gathering everybody around. Man, let's get excited. Let's get powerful. Let's get angry. Guess what? Nobody knows who he is. Oh, Artemis. She's the one. The entire world came to worship. Guess what? She doesn't matter. She's gone. But you know what isn't gone? Church of Christ. The church that Jesus built that said, I am building this church on the rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Guess what's not gone? The church. Guess what's not gone? The word of God. Our scriptures. The words of Jesus. The words of Paul. The words of Peter. The words of Moses. The words of David. The words of Solomon. We still have that. It's still here today. You know what else isn't gone? The gospel that Paul proclaimed is still here today. It is still setting people free. The Holy Spirit still indwelling people's lives. When you think about that, like, like everything they held dear is gone. But then there's this God stuff, and it's here today. Why do we get caught up worshiping the culture, and pursuing the idols that everybody tells us to focus on. 
Why do we think those are the things that matter most? Our money, our prestige, uh, our looks, and this and that. Why can't we step above those things? 1 John 2.17 says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but listen to this. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. This earth, our idols, guess what? They're going to crumble. We work so hard to build a house and to buy the car and to, and to have the looks and to, to have all the toys and to do all these things. Guess what? A hundred years from now, those things are going to be gone. They're going to send archaeologists to come to your house to say, man, I can kind of see that's where their bedroom was. And, and maybe, maybe that's, oh, that's a tire from the car. Tires won't last long. It'll be a bolt from the car. It's all Ephesus. It's all Ephesus. It's not going to matter. It's going to be gone. Yet we give ourselves to worship of it. Unless we resolve in our heart to submit to the Spirit, focus on the things that will last for eternity, the things of God. Again, I come back to this idea. I love the picture of the impact that the church had on the city. We all would imagine things that we'd love to see different in our city and different in our culture and our world. What evils would you want to see taken out of this world? Pornography? Abortion? Drug and alcohol abuse? We have all sorts of problems that we would love. Man, God, I'd love for you to do something here. I'm sure we've got a, mile, a list a mile long of things we'd love to see changed. But you know where it starts? It doesn't start by us picketing. It doesn't start by us blasting on social media the evils of this world, making sure everybody knows, hey, I'm against that thing. No, it starts with the church. It starts with you and me. It is the pattern of scriptures that when we are resolved in the spirit, fully devoted to the gospel and the things of God, when we are steadfast in him, and that is when he unleashes the power of God in us and through us. And I begin to think all the things we want to see different in the world. And I believe God can do some things in our city and in our world, but guess what? It starts with you and me. So what is the step that you need to take today? Is it confession and repentance? Is it saying, God, this is the idol I've pursued? And today, God, I'm just confessing it. God, I'm going to give it to you. Today, do you need to surrender your bank account to God? Your schedule to God? Do you need to say, God, I need you to change my heart so I can be focused on Jesus and not the evil in the world and not my anger? What step do you need to take? Listen, you don't have to fight the faith alone. God never calls us to fight the fight of faith alone. 
Maybe for you, the step is just to commit to the body of Christ and say, hey, I'm going to gather with this group of people and I'm going to charge the hill with them and walk alongside them to say, let's figure this thing out. Let's be resolved together. The worship team leads us into a song. I'm going to just invite you to spend some time between you and the Lord. Confess, pray, seek his face. And let's pray that God would unleash his power in us and through us to expose the idols in our lives.